Okay, I bet, I bet by now you know you need your outline and your Bible. So, so I need to turn my thing on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the, the opportunity to have this day together around your word. Thank you that your word does tell us such wonderful things uh, about your grace, the grace that's appeared in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, this, uh, this letter has reminded us yet again of how that grace of God works out in every corner of our life and uh, holds the promise of bringing us health as human beings. We pray that you will continue to be with us now as we turn to the final chapter and help us to uh, hear what you have to say to us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Setting the world in order, liberated from foolishness is our is, is Titus chapter 3. Now, one of the, one of the things that uh, we've noticed in the last couple of years is there's been a rise of what you might call angry atheism. Uh, you've noticed that. Um, and uh, Australia has found themselves caught up in uh, the midst of this, uh, you know, maybe not as strongly elsewhere in, in the world, but we've certainly uh, had our visitors from overseas telling us that there's no reason to believe in God anymore. And, in fact, Melbourne um, has, had, has hosted two international atheist conferences. I don't know whether you've known that over the last couple of years. So we've been the international centre of atheism, at least, for those conferences. Um, the interesting thing to me is that uh, in any other place in the world, I would imagine, I don't know, that you might have on your platform... Uh, of such a discussion, you might have all kinds of you know, philosophers, theologians, uh, thinkers, recognised thinkers, but in Australia we have uh, comedians <laughs> and in Sydney we have ex-footballers as the leading, uh, the leading champions of, of atheism. So I guess that's the kind of um, discussion that we have. You know, you, if you can laugh at something then um, you know, it, 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 that's better than making a good argument apparently in, in Australia. But overseas, in one of the, uh, the British atheistic philosophers, um, Alan de Botain, I think you say his name, you might have noticed uh, two years ago, I think, was part of, uh, I don't know whether it was his suggestion, but he was part of a suggestion that they ought to build a temple in London uh, to atheism, a temple to atheism. How about that? Okay. Temple is traditionally the place where um, gods were said to dwell, or at least make their presence known on the earth. Uh, now you're going to have a temple to atheism. Um, what was this temple going to be? It, it consisted of a massive uh, black tower that uh, in perspective stretched to a, a, a thin point way above your head and you were to stand at the bottom and gaze up at it and then up the, at the top, right at the top of this, uh, this tower was going to be a thin gold line which you could see if you really strained hard to look at that. You could see this thin uh, gold line. And this was called the Temple of Perspective. That's what it was, the Temple of Perspective. Now, what does it mean? The thin gold line represents the entire existence of human beings on this earth. Way up there and you can hardly see it. Okay? And the rest of it is saying that, you know, now what's it doing? It's giving us perspective on our life. We are nothing. 
That's interesting when you build a temple to atheism in terms of the human value of that temple, it is to tell us we are nothing. As if I needed something else to tell me that. <laughs> okay. Put us in perspective, time, eternity or whatever, we are nothing. Very interesting again to hear the Christian gospel because we are never told that. We are never told we are nothing. The gospel of Jesus Christ, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Here is the message. You know that first John 3.16, very famous verse, goes to all the football games nowadays. <laughs> um, that verse is saying, you know, we're immensely significant in God's eyes. Human beings, immensely significant. So atheism tells us we're insignificant. The gospel tells us we have a part to play in God's plan. Just like the chaos of our world um, from my first talk might keep on saying to us, what can we possibly do? We're insignificant. Uh, one person against this massive chaotic world, even a room full like this against this massive chaotic world, what can we possibly do? God's plan invites us all to be part of his plan and it says you can do an enormous amount by being the person that God wants you to be and reorder yourself, reorder your relationships, reorder your society outwards and this is the way the gospel changes this world in the present time as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of our Saviour when the kingdom of God will, do, uh, will be the, you know, the renovation full and complete um, at the end. Our third uh, chapter, Titus 3, liberated from foolishness. Liberated from foolishness. The Bible says a lot about being a fool <laughs> and the Psalm 14, matched by Psalm 35, same Psalm, uh, says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. So the temple to perspective is the recognition of foolish thinking if it ever gets built. And the recognition of foolish thinking that says we are insignificant just because we're tiny or in small numbers or um, we only live for four, uh, three score years and ten against the massive time of the world. Any of that kind of thinking or the space, uh, the stars go out so far, you know, all of that sort of thinking is utter foolish thinking according to the Bible. Um, Let's see what it is when we are liberated from foolishness and we become fools no more because that's what it is to become a Christian. To become someone who's uh, not out of your own resources, not, not out of your own thinking, your own intelligence, your own natural giftedness, but it's to, to become someone who recognises in the foolish message of the cross, wisdom. And then once you've seen the, the, the wisdom of God in the message of the cross, this begins to help you to live as a wise person as we, that grace of God trains us for godliness and flows out into all of our lives. Fools no more. That can be a, a heading over, you know, a, a label over all of our heads if we're someone who's become uh, a Christian. And you'll notice that in a sense chapter 3 it doesn't, have, you know, chapter 3 starts where chapter 2 should have finished. <laughs> uh, there's a little bit about um, uh, Christian behaviour in society so it finishes off the kind of relational uh, discussion that Paul was having in, in chapter 2 um, as he talks about good works in society. Um, but uh, let's have a look at what he has to say under this heading of fools no more. 
uh, at my first point, fools no more. Um, I have a brother who has had a theory for years and he's got plenty of evidence to confirm it that goes like this, everybody lives next to crazy neighbours. <laughs> Who'd like to put their hand up and say that, that theory's true? I think there's a lot of heads nodding around at this point. No matter where you go, everybody has a crazy neighbour story, right? Everybody lives next to crazy neighbours. How do we be the people of God, the people of Christ, living in a world filled with crazy neighbours? Fools no more. Paul is not one to back off from... Um, uh, he's not one to sort of fall into flattery and uh, it's not his problem and we see in chapter 3 he's got some fairly unflattering words to say about our world. We know he's not someone who flatters uh, people. Back in chapter 1 verse 12, you remember he's t- talking to Titus who's been left in Crete and he says to, to Titus back there, one of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes and lazy gluttons. And then Paul adds his own word, he's surely told the truth. <laughs> so he's not going to flatter the Cretans and he's not going to flatter the world that we're in. We need to be realistic about the kind of world that we're in. And what he has to say in chapter 3 is, I think, a wonderful insight in how we do that. We're not standing there criticising a world that's gone mad as if we're somehow above it. But what we see in chapter 3 is we criticise the world of which we once were a part. Fools no more. We've been brought out of that world. But that's been a rescue that God has done for us. We're not saying, I'm now wise because of me. No, I'm wise because of the word of the cross. And I remember that I was a fool once too. Now that, that, ex- that brings a, a, a wonderful transformative influence on the way that we deal with other people. Let's read through. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always to be gentle towards everyone or, or humble towards everyone. Here's a list again that's worth a great deal of meditation, you know, um, thought about this. And, and, and uh, as we think about it, about our own life and what this means, to slander no one, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable rather than someone who's bringing about conflict, considerate instead of someone who doesn't think about people at all, uh, always gentle towards everyone with a sort of a, a spirit and an attitude of understanding, acceptance, that is not too quick to jump down people's throats. Something like that behind that word. We can meditate upon these words uh, and, and a lot more than we, we've got time to today. But what a wonderful portrait of a person who's been transformed. Now, in my Bible, the very important words dropped out, and often this happens in some of our English translations, in verse 3, because verse 3 should have the word, the little word, and that's why it's so easy for translators to miss it and not drop it out, only three letters, the word for, that is F-O-R. Now, because verse 3 gives us the reason why it's there in the original. I don't know how many have got it in their English versions in front of them. Yeah, there's some have. That's excellent. What versions are you using? Let's go out and buy those ones. <laughs> okay. Many didn't have that. You see, I've got the T and O-V in front of me. But it's there in the original, for. Four is very important because it gives you the reason why you ought to do something. So why should we be subject to rulers and authorities, obedient, ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always to be gentle towards everyone? For, here's the reason, at one time we too were foolish, 
disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Notice that? And then verse 4, but, which brings about the change. But let's think a little bit about our former manner of life when we too lived in foolishness. What a portrait of the world Paul gives us here. (laughs) What a portrait of the crazy neighbours all around us. And remember, they're saying that about you as well. (laughs) Uh, What a portrait of the world that we're in um, that we see here depicted. And every now and again in the New Testament, in Paul's writings especially, we get a little snapshot of a man of God evaluating the world truly. And here we see one of those. I mean, what a portrait it is. Uh, Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. And here's society. We lived in malice, hatred, and envy, wanting everyone else's stuff, being hated and hating one another. How about that expression for a description of society? Being hated and hating in return. (laughs) Well, any wonder our world's chaotic if this is what we're like. This is God's evaluation through the Apostle Paul of human society. Um, and, And it's not a very flattering portrait, is it? But, on the other hand, can't you see the ring of truth here? Read your newspapers and tick off the things in Titus chapter 3 on page 1, page 3, page 5, even in the cartoons. <laughs> okay? um, this is a, a portrait of our world. But what is he saying? It's not a portrait of our world at a distance from us. As if we can stand in judgement over it. No, what he's saying is we too were once foolish, deceived, hating and being hated, etc., etc. This is our world, this is us. And the only reason we're not still there in in all its murkiness is because of the but in verse 4. Now let's not get to that but yet. We'll get there in due due course. Now just put these first couple of verses together. Verse 1 to 2 all those beautiful characteristics of behaviour towards other people uh, for the reason that we once were foolish, etc. How does that go together, you see? Well, the reason why we can be peaceable and considerate and always gentle towards everyone is because we remember that we once were like them. Who do you need to be gentle with? Someone who's opposed to you, someone who's slandering you, someone who's giving you a hard time. Your natural reaction is not to be gentle, but he's saying be gentle with them. Why? Because you remember you were foolish like them once as well. <laughs> it's, a, it's a marvellous piece of um, how you relate to other people. To remember, you know, well, why am I getting upset with them? If I am, in a sense, I'm getting upset with myself. That's where I used to be. The only reason I'm not like that now is because of verse 4. Don't, don't read on. <laughs> See, it's a beautiful piece of, of how do we get on with our neighbours how do we get on with a difficult world? Remember what you were once like. Now when we go on to read, about, read verse 4, when I give you permission to look down there, it's all about the grace of God again and what Jesus has done for us. And so if we remember that we were once like that but now we've been transformed because of the grace of God, it means that when we're dealing with people who are difficult, our crazy neighbours... It means that we can remember that I used to be like that but I'm not now but I've been changed so I'm not like that because of Jesus Christ. That means I've got something to give these people and I'm become there not as someone who's 
protecting my own self-interest or whatever it might be, but I'm there as an agent of Christ's change in the world. I've been reordered, they haven't been reordered, but now I know if I remember that I used to be like that, I've been reordered by the grace of God in Christ, so I've got something to help this person to become a fool no more. So remember, you're all a bunch of fools. <laughs> That's what you once were, apart from the grace of God. Rescued by God's goodness, my second point. This is the, this wonderful paragraph in verses 4 through to 7. But, so this is what happened to us, when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared. When the, God, the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared. Titus loves this word. I mean, it's, it's only a small book, so you can't, you, know, you can't expect hundreds and hundreds of occurrences of, of words, but he uses this word in every chapter. The word appeared. Right. Um, it's back there in chapter uh, 1 verse 3 that the word of God has appeared in the preaching. Uh, it's there in chapter 2 verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, a saving remedy for all people. And now again, but when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared. See, God has not left himself uh, hidden. God is not in the dark. Our atheists who want to build a temple to say we can't know that God is there just aren't looking in the right spot. God has stepped out of the dark, stepped out of the shadows and made himself known in the glorious light of the Lord Jesus Christ. There in human history we have God appearing. God became man. God became flesh and dwelt amongst us for a while. There in human history Jesus Christ is public, openly known. If only people want to look in the right spot they will see God. Um, God has appeared. But notice he doesn't say uh, just that God has appeared here. What does he say? When the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared. Because that's one and the same thing. When God appeared, he appeared as the kindness and love that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. Manifest for all to behold. Uh, or chapter 2, verse 11, the grace of God appeared. Because what was Jesus Christ? the Son of God, taking on flesh in our world, God so loved the world that he gave his Son that whoever believes in him uh, will not perish but have eternal life. To see Jesus is to see the grace of God. To see Jesus is the saving remedy that's there for all who, who grasp it with, uh, with, in faith. Uh, and what, what he's talking about here in this little paragraph is reflecting upon that moment in human history when God came and dwelt amongst us to display his kindness and goodness to all. Notice he goes on, what happened when the Saviour, God, our, the kindness and, uh, and love of God, our Saviour, appeared? He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on, his, on, on us generously, through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. Now once again you see the sweep of God's timetable, don't you, from the appearing, of the, here in this paragraph, from the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, through to our hope of eternal life, and there's stuff in the middle as well. 
just like we've seen several times in Titus already. But notice what he, he says here about uh, being saved when Jesus Christ appeared. He saved us, verse 5, not because of the righteous things we had done. This is an amazing thing to find in the book of Titus because Titus is saying all over the place in these three short chapters, uh, he's always saying, do good, do these things, change your life in this way. He's all on about doing good stuff and being, having godliness come out in, in, your, in your life. But notice what he says is, none of that stuff is what we're saved by. We weren't saved. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So anything that Titus is telling us to do is as a result of already being saved rather than a way of being saved. And don't human beings continue to get this wrong? You know, we think that we're going to get right with God by doing good things. Quite often it's uh, not that blatant. What we might think is, uh, I, I feel like God's not on my side. And you might wonder, well, why, isn't, why do I feel like God's not on my side? Well, I, I know that I'm a sinner. I've done this, I've done that. Surely I can't be forgiven for what I did back there in the past. Surely I'm too bad over here. I don't see much improvement in my life. And so surely God doesn't love me. You see, that might be the way it comes through in your mind. But this verse is running completely against that. Nothing you have done, uh, nothing that you have said, no religious practice you've been engaged in, no um, ceremony that you might do over and over again, whatever it is, nothing saves you. None of that saves you. And just as well, because we're often we've got the, that's the, if that's the positive side, often the negative side is so bad anyway, so how are we going to cancel that out? You see? How many times do you have to tell the truth before you cancel out your hundreds of lies? See? It doesn't work that way. Um, and thankfully it doesn't. Because here, here's how it works, chapter 3, verse 5. God, when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. The only way that anyone is saved is through the mercy of God. We're forgiven by Christ. As he goes on to say, there's this washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom God poured out on us generously, not deservedly, but generously, through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Having been justified by his grace. Justified is, a, is legal language. Um, if you, uh, to put it probably in the way that we've heard it more often than not, it's when a judge declares someone to be innocent of a crime and they don't have to pay, so they go home. So justified, you're justified before a judge. Now how do we become justified before the judge of all human beings? Well the only way, if we stood there on the, on the basis of our own deeds, we'd all be sunk because all of us are sinners. All of us have sinned before God, against God, against each other. We, were one, we too were once foolish, living in hatred, being hated and hating in return. You know, all those things we've seen, this, is, this was our former manner of life. The only reason that any of us can be saved is because Jesus Christ died for our sins so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be justified, not on the basis of our own works, would never be justified if that was the case, but justified on the basis of Jesus' works on our behalf. 
Um, you know, the, 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 uh, I'm sure you've heard this all, many of you have heard this before, but it's like you, you know, you've got a, a record of wrongs against you in one hand uh, and you've got Jesus with no record of wrongs at all on, in the other hand. Our weighty volume of sin is transferred to him. He pays for it on the cross and so we can go home free and innocent and justified before God. Now that is the best news that this world has ever heard. And unfortunately so many people haven't heard it yet. Tell it to them. Okay? Sinners are around everywhere, your crazy neighbours included. And those crazy neighbours need to know that no matter what they've done against other human beings or against their God, they can be forgiven. God uh, invites them to come to his saving remedy and take hold of it. Now, of course, we also know that uh, God is bringing people to himself and so we need to be praying that he opens people's eyes as he chooses people uh, to, to hear that message and to be saved. And we see that in Titus as well. But what a beautiful doctrine this is, justification by faith alone. That is, we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, no works, but we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and because he died for us, we can go free. Justification by faith alone. That message changed the European world at least forever in the 16th century. Oh, well, maybe not forever. <laughs> it declined as well, but dramatically is what I meant to say. Okay. Um, that message can change our country as well as we uh, tell people again about justification by faith alone. Uh, you can spend a whole weekend, and maybe you should do it sometime, or some speaker should do it for you, you can spend a whole, a whole weekend really, a whole lifetime, trying to understand justification by faith. It has so many different implications. But think about verse, here's one for you. Think about verse 5. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done but because of his mercy. This immediately says, remember we're asking the question what it is to be a human, what it is to be poor old Hunter Thompson, a man rather than a beast. Well that verse, that justification by faith immediately changes your understanding of what it is to be a true human being. Everybody in the world seems to believe that you, 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 you know, for a man, you become a man by doing things, by action, by achievement, by getting ahead, by acquiring things. See? You become a human being by what you do in the world, that's why we talk about our profession so much, or what we have, that's what we acquire through our work. So everything's about our actions, what we achieve. Justification by faith says, actions, not, got nothing to do with it. You know, who you are as a person is not about what you've done but it's about being related to the Lord Jesus Christ properly. It's who you are. And so who you, know, who you are as a person is uh, are you in Christ? Do you belong to him? Are you one of his people or not? That's the big question in life. And justification by faith keeps on telling us uh, we, we aren't what we do but we are who we're connected to. Uh, we are Christ's people. That's wonderfully liberating if you keep on thinking about it. <laughs> I might have just confused you, but <laughs> it's a wonderfully liberating message. We aren't what we do. We are the people of Christ. And that's very different. Now, because we're the people of Christ, we do lots of good things. That's the next step. 
But we don't do lots of things. We don't we don't do these lots of good things in order to be saved, in or in order to be the people where you know um, uh, in order to be someone. But we do it because it's a natural response to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We are re- reordered, renewed. That spiritual renewal that's talked about in that paragraph. We become heirs of eternal life. We have a future hope. We will not. We, we will one day rise from the dead because of Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, we live a renewed, reordered life for ourselves, in amongst our relationship, and in our world. And so, my third point: devoted to good works. This comes through so often in this little in, in chapter three, uh, chapter three, verse eight. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Why is that such a bad thing? <laughs> you know, have you heard people criticise for, for Christians being, you know, you know goody two-shoes or whatever? You see? We need people to be good. This world needs people to be good. Our Prime Minister stood in Parliament this week and said that what we're seeing in Syria and Afghanistan is almost pure evil. This is the time where our world should see we need people doing what is good. We can see what the evil is. Let's now do what is good. And Christ liberates us so that we are enabled to do the good things that God has prepared for us to do. Sometimes as Christians we can say, oh, but we know we're sinners as well and surely sinners can't do anything good so we won't even bother trying. That's not the attitude you have here in Titus chapter 3. Be devoted to doing what is good. This is why Christ has redeemed us. And Paul says to Titus, I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God for their salvation, that's us, I'm adding those words but that's the context, those who have trusted in God for their salvation may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Be careful, deliberate, think about it, get on with it do what is good and these things are excellent and profitable for everyone as you do good you're doing good for the world it might just look like you're doing good for the crazy neighbour next door but this is something that's spreading like yeast in the world it's excellent for everyone these things that God wants us to do these things are excellent and profitable for everyone devoted to good works or down there in verse 14 he finishes his letter after a few little instructions about, to his, about his friends, uh, he then says in verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not to live unfruitful lives. We need to learn what it is to be, to be devoted to, to, to the good. We need to help each other in that as we think about what it is to do good things in this world because of the grace of God that has acted in, has brought up, brought so many benefits to our life. Now already we've seen um, uh, we've we've already seen in this letter plenty of what it means to do good, uh, and we've already seen that in fact uh, the teaching of God uh, that we've, that's found in the preaching about Jesus Christ, the message about Jesus Christ, brings health. It's sound teaching, healthy teaching, and it brings health to human beings, to human relationships, to human societies. This is the way that God is reordering his world through the preaching 
about Christ, the grace of God. Uh, we start with that message and it works itself out in, in, in uh, human lives and relationships as the grace of God trains us to be the people that God would want us to be. In verse 9 and 10 there's a couple of um, alternatives um, just to finish the chapter off a bit but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Now these might have been particular, of particular interest to the, um, uh, the false teaching that we read about that we skipped over in chapter 1 um, which uh, you know, had a particular interest in certain uh, issues but, but it doesn't matter about the detail of it. We know that there are foolish controversies. Well, that's not going to bring health to communities. Get on with preaching the gospel. <laughs> um, you know, don't, don't get stuck on the foolish controversies and arguments and genealogies and quarrels about the law. But get on with the health-bringing gospel of the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't know how many times I've done it in my life, but maybe I should have done a little bit more. But when you're involved with a, you know, some sort of... Is, is, sorry, isn't it interesting how our crazy neighbours, when they do bring up Christianity, it often seems to be a peripheral thing, not a central thing. And I don't know how many times in my, in my life, I should have done it more often than I have, that I've been involved in such a discussion about a peripheral thing and I suddenly realise there's no end to this discussion. Where's it going to go? And you just sort of stop and say, look, you know, I don't know about that. There's, you know, we've raised, we had a great discussion, thanks for that. There's been a lot of things we could keep on talking about. I hope we do. But I just wonder, do you, what, do you, what do you think, uh, if you could put it in a real simple sentence, what do you think Jesus really brings to the world? Just bring it back to the centre and start talking about the grace of God that's appeared in him. Changes the conversation. Because <laughs> it's usually, everyone knows about the peripheral controversy stuff. What is it about the centre? Why did Jesus die? What did he bring to you and I? What's he promising the world? What's he offering you? Ask those kind of questions and see whether the conversation starts changing. See? And there is a place, um, again it must be done, in verse, we're looking at verse 10 and 11, it must be done of course uh, if we listen to what Paul has already said in verse 2, without slander and peaceably and considerately, with gentleness towards everyone, but there is a place when you're confronted with divisive people, verse 10, people who seem to be warped and sinful, self-condemned, These are strong, this is strong language, but there, there is a place for saying uh, the conversation's over and I'm not going to talk about this anymore and Paul counsels with such a person, warning once and twice and have nothing to do with them. Now it seems like th these two, might, these people might also be part of that group that we read about at the end of chapter 1 who are bringing false teaching in and if, if you're, you're in a congregation, it's always a very difficult thing for a pastor or an elder to work out when you've reached this situation. But there is a time when a, a person is so difficult um, that you know, it's time to, have, to move on uh, and to go with other people. That's what he's talking about in verse 10 and 11. Again, I'm probably, I hope I don't open a minefield with that one, but um, just to pass over it uh, briefly, um, there is a time where uh, for the sake of the gospel of Christ, which is so important for the world, we disengage with this conversation over here because there's plenty more people that need to hear over there. You might remember in uh, Matthew chapter 10 when Jesus sent his first 12 apostles out amongst Israel, he had a similar sort of strategy, go where you're getting a hearing. And when there's a difficult time, he said even shake off the dust off your feet 
if you're not received. So there is a time where we say, no longer here, we're going further over here because the world is in great need and the time is short, I think is probably what's lying behind that. Devoted to good works. Finally, you might say, point four, grace received and grace given. I just want to take you back through the letter to, it's like a skeleton that runs through this letter to Titus. The skeleton that tells us about everything else, that everything else is hanging off. And that skeleton is all about the grace of God that's appeared in our world. This this language of appearing again. Chapter 1, verse 2. Why is Paul's purpose so clear to him to promote faith, knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness? Because the hope of eternal life, that glorious future kingdom of God, that was promised before time began, has now appeared. It's in our world, that hope of eternal life. We know about it. We know where it comes from. We know who it comes from. It's appeared in the preaching, uh, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the present time, that means the plan of God for this world, is revealed in this wonderful message that we're talking about today and we think about, we've believed. The grace of... uh, The hope of eternal life has appeared. Slightly different language but clustering around the same point, chapter 2 verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. A saving remedy for all people. Once again, Jesus Christ coming into our world. A dramatic moment that we still mark in our calendar even though some are trying to get rid of it. BC, AD, before Christ the year of our Lord, 2014. There's a turning point in time recognising that Jesus Christ has come. This is the time of reformation, a time for thoroughly, thoroughly ordering the world, straightening out the world through this gospel. So there's that grace of God appeared. Or chapter 3, verse uh, 4, but when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared... The grace of God has appeared in our world. It's there for for all to see as we look, uh, as we hear the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we look to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf for our sins so that we might live forever. Uh, This is the good news of Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared. That's the skeleton that runs all the way through the letter to to Titus. That's the message we need to keep on telling each other hearing and believing. The grace of God has appeared. Grace for you, grace for me in the Lord Jesus Christ. Justification by faith, uh, being saved, being renewed and renovated by the Spirit. This is the message of grace that's like a skeleton all the way through the book of Titus. Now the other side of that is our lives are then flooded with the grace of God. They ought to be flooded with the grace of God. Grace has been received by us and we should become channels of grace to other people. Um, He has reordered our life. He is reordering our life. And as our lives are reordered, this should flow out to the reordering of our relationships, our congregations, our society, our world. You are very significant. Each of you is very significant. God has saved you for a purpose. To get healthy yourself, so that you might help others get healthy in that spiritual sense of reordering the world 
to live for Jesus Christ. Reordering your own life by the gospel of grace. Reordering your relationships by the gospel of grace. Reordering your society by the gospel of grace and taking that gospel of grace to a world that is so much in need. I don't know about you, but at this particular time, maybe in this particular week, we've got so many reminders that the world seems to be in chaos. It's not. God is in charge. At this particular time, we've got so many reminders that seem to say there is no plan, that we are insignificant as Christians. They're not even talking about our brothers until recently, not even talking about our brothers and sisters who are being slaughtered. That's how insignificant we are to this world. Well, that's not true either. You and our brothers and sisters everywhere are God's agent for change, not because of anything in us, but because we are the messengers of the preaching. And that preaching is where the grace of God is manifested. And once people see that and take hold of that, it is the remedy, uh, the saving remedy for all people. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I need to finish. I've already gone on too long. It's only because I've got a long friendship with Chris that he, that he hasn't brought the hook up and dragged me off. <laughs> okay. But just to finish, this, this wonderful little letter, uh, live it out, live out the grace of God and take your place in God's plan. You are tremendously significant. You are standing in the Lord, one of the parts of the Lord's harvest field with the saving remedy for all people. We need to live it, believe it, Take it to others. Um, will you join me in that? Okay, let me, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ your grace has appeared uh, that has saved us. Please help us, Father, to be those who believe that message, those who know the truth and those who are shaped into li- with lives of godliness as a result. Heavenly Father, please help us to take that saving remedy to all those around us Uh, remembering that we too were once foolish, but it's only because of your mercy we now live uh, with the health of God as part of our life. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.